the second episode of One Weird Writer Reads Twilight Fan Fiction, Master of the Universe Edition. I am said writer, Catherine Shaw. The second episode of this podcast ran too long. This is me re-recording and fixing that, then moving on to the fourth episode. It's a good idea to kind of look back at some of these recaps because they become really important when you get into Master of the Universe. The reason it went too long was because of my verbose nature and about what this project means to me and how it started. I've decided to put in my own commentary as extras, in case you're interested, including some things to think about when it comes to the books. For any newcomers, Master of the Universe started out as Twilight Fan Fiction by Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. Names were changed, including the authors, and E.L. James took her Twilight Fan Fiction and created Notorious Culture Trash. Master of the Universe can be purchased under the titles Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades Darker, Fifty Shades Freed, Grey by Grey, and Darker by Grey. Wow. Master of the Universe really hardly exists anymore on the internet. Uh, Snow Queen's Ice Dragon was pretty thorough in that. But I have it, and yeah, I'm reading it. Each episode will include a chapter recap of Fifty Shades of Grey, written by author Jenny Trout. You can find them at JennyTrout.com under I read Fifty Shades of Grey, so you don't have to. Jenny Trout did not write Fifty Shades of Grey, just in case you didn't get that. I will read the recaps first as they put every page and chapter of Master of the Universe into context. Forewarning, I am not a fan of E.L. James or any of her books. The movies, especially the second and third, are terrible, but I recommend the soundtrack. See, I said one nice thing about it, but uh, then again, Danny Elfman composed all of the soundtracks, so he's considered the best, and I'm not sure how to give credit for the production for him and his talent. Mm, whatever. I complimented it. I do welcome debate and differing opinions. I can disagree without being disagreeable. Not everyone can. For me, this topic and my opinions are cemented and never changing, much like Edward Cullen. Don't say I didn't warn you. And with that, let's begin. Again, thanks for tuning in and feedback is appreciated. Let's get on with the pain. We last left Anna in an elevator, leaving Christian's office. Chapter 2 begins with her heart pounding, the doors opening, and then there's some scrambling and stumbling that doesn't end with a classic Bella Swan Anastasia Steele pratfall. I don't know, Anna. Maybe you wouldn't fall down so damn much uh, if you had more speeds than a cheap-ass lawnmower. Seriously, she's either walking like a normal human being or bouncing around like a pinball with a very bad concept of gravity. I race for the wide doors and I'm free in the bracing, cleansing, damp air of Seattle. I know the first adjective that comes to mind when I think clean and bracing is damp. Uh, <laughs> and wait, wasn't she driving to Portland in the first chapter? Now she's in Seattle. Oh, who the fuck cares? It's all one big rainy forks to E.L. James, right? No man has ever affected me the way Christian Grey has, and I can't fathom why. I can't either, Annabella. Just a minute ago, 
in his office. He was an arrogant prick that you seemed like you couldn't stand. Now, reader, let me assure you, I'm not misunderstanding the Sam and Diane rules of attraction and, and loathing. I get loving to hate someone and hating that you love them. This came off more like a middle schooler with an embarrassing crush. I don't like you, but I like you. So I'm going to think a lot of mean things about you while doodling your name in my notebook. Anna goes outside and leans against a steel pillar in the rain because she needs a moment to recover from the sheer sexual intimidation that is Christian Grey. If you don't understand by now that she is really, really affected by him, well, there's no hope for you because she's beating you over the head with it. She even throws in a holy crap for good measure. You know Anna is serious when that kind of language starts. She drives away from Seattle, Portland, still playing over this highly erotic experience of interviewing someone. Seriously, from the way she's going on, I'm thinking Barbara Walters must have to wear waterproof undies to work because the interviews are that sexually exciting. Okay, not in a free interview. Just any interview with a man who wears ties and has shrewd gazes. Okay, so he's attractive, confident, commanding, at ease with himself, but on the flip side, he's arrogant. And for all of his impeccable manners, he's autocratic and cold while on the surface. <sighs> As anyone who watches Downtown Abbey knows, impeccable manners usually go hand in hand with deep expressions of feelings to total strangers. This is the kind of thing that's going to kill me in this book. It doesn't follow that having impeccable manners would mean that you're a warm person. And in the next line, an involuntary shiver runs down Anna's spine. Who shivers on purpose? Seriously, who controls whether or not they shiver, especially standing in the rain, leaning on a steel pillar? This is what is going to wear me down, all of this little bullshit. So Anna is thinking about Christian and how he has the right to be arrogant. Then she says, he doesn't suffer fools gladly, and I spit out my gum. Bish, please. You just did a header into his office rug and couldn't work a recorder, then insulted him to his face, and he still canceled the next meeting to make sure you didn't secure yourself a handicapped parking spot by leaving the building. On second thought, Maybe that last part had to do with the insurance nightmare having someone like Anna on your property is going to inevitably lead to. But still, he suffered a fool today, and he was very polite about it because of his impeccable manners. And Kate's question, ugh, the adoption and asking him if he was gay, I shudder. I can't believe I said that. Ground to swallow me up now. Every time I think of... That question in the future, I will cringe with embarrassment. Damn Catherine Kavanaugh. She's super embarrassed, not because she Bella Swan dived into the office, not because she called him a control freak to his face and was openly hostile throughout the interview, not because she stood outside the building in the rain like she was auditioning for a Michael Bolton video in 1989, but because of Catherine. Catherine forced her to read those questions, which Anna apparently hadn't bothered to look at before showing up to the interview. She's mad at Kate because she didn't give her a biography before she went. But if she didn't bother looking at the questions, would she have bothered to read the bio? 
deciding that she's had enough ruminating how impossibly hot Christian Grey is, she flouts his order to drive safely because this is New Moon and she's going to be damned if he'll run off to Italy to immolate himself and leave her behind. Nope, sorry. I keep getting confused, but can you really blame me? She turns on the thumping indie rock music and tears down the highway. Ten to one, she's listening to Muse's Black Holes and Revelations because as you may or may not have picked up from the subtle hints I'm laying down, this is Twilight. We get to the description of Anna's living situation in a small community of duplex apartments near the WSU campus. Apparently, Kate's parents bought the place for her. The apartment, the whole duplex, the whole community, who knows? Because subject-verb agreement is for pussies. And E.L. James is no pussy. Anna realizes that Kate is going to want to know what happened at the interview. I'm guessing that Kate is going to listen to the disc, hear Anna, and the way she was talking to the most important entrepreneur in Washington and or Oregon and be absolutely thrilled. Anna, meanwhile, isn't thrilled. Her friend is wearing horrible pink bunny PJs that she wears only during moments of absolute weakness. Kate hugs Anna expresses that she was worried because she expected her home earlier and thanks her profusely before asking questions about the interview. How does Anna's internal narrative respond to this? Oh no, here we go, the Catherine Cavanaugh Inquisition. Seriously, Anna? Seriously? You're expecting that she wasn't going to ask you about the interview that will make or break her as an editor of the WSU school newspaper? When I was reading Twilight, I had this horrible feeling that if it was a memoir and Bella's friends read what she had to say about them, they would be, they would have javelined her before she could say, what's up with all the mud? I'm beginning to feel a lot more sympathy toward the wretched Kate than towards Anna. Sure, Anna made her soup to to make her feel better, but she probably bitched about it internally the entire time it was simmering on the stove. Don't you look so innocent? Why didn't you just give me his biography? He made me feel like such an idiot for skimping on basic research. Kate clamps her hand to her mouth. Geez, Anna, I'm sorry. I didn't think I huff. Mostly he was courteous, formal, slightly stuffy. Like he's old before his time. He doesn't talk like a man of 20-something. How old is he anyway? 27. Jeez, Anna, I'm sorry. I should have briefed you, but I was in such a panic. Maybe he's a vampire. Maybe that's why he sounds like he's old before his time. And while we're flinging wild accusations around, Anna, maybe you're a vampire too, since you talk all sorts of stuffy yourself. A man of 20-something. Who talks like that? No one. Absolutely no one. That is why you should always read your dialogue out loud, kids. And the clean cussing is another thing. Crap, geez, or uh, oh brother and golly too much, too strong to print. I'm seriously expecting great honk and jeepers to pop up. And for the mayor from the music man to start lecturing everyone about watching their phraseology. If we were to make a drinking game out of every time someone says an impossibly clean curse word, do you know what would happen? Yeah. Yeah, we'd be drunk. But, you know, let's not gloss over something that is so incredibly irritating to me at this point in the chapter. Look how much Kate is apologizing to Anna and what she is 
is she apologizing for, really? What was stopping Anna from looking any of this information up on her phone while she waited outside Christian's office? Not a damn thing. Anna knew she was going to interview the guy. It's not like Kate had commandos bust into Anna's room in the middle of the night, hit her with a stun gun a few times, then bag her head and drop her off in Christian's office with a recorder and a list of questions. She could have prepared better for the experience. She didn't. Because this is Anna's story, and we're supposed to be just as annoyed with Kate as Anna is. No, E.L. James, I'm not buying what you're selling today. Because Anna is, if nothing, a martyr. She leaves immediately for her job, the hardware store. It's ironic, you see, that she works at a hardware store because she's hopeless with anything DIY. She actually says crap at DIY. But... I hesitated to type that at first because the whole drinking game thing. I don't want to be responsible for your alcohol poisoning. Anna would rather curl up with a book than build anything with her hands, and that's probably stemming from a solid sense of self-preservation in the saws versus fingers department, based on what we've seen of her coordination so far. But she knows a lot about hardware, and she's happy to go to work because it'll take her mind off Christian Gray. Yeah. <laughs> After absolutely nothing happens at her job, we're forced to come along a few paragraphs anyway, and Anna comes home to find Kate working on the story. Once again, Anna reminds us of all the studying she couldn't do because she spent all day interviewing Christian Gray. Except, when Anna showed up for work, her boss didn't expect Anna that day. So wait a second, Anna could have stayed home from work, get, gotten this impossibly huge amount of studying done, but she went in anyway, and we're all tagged along. Why? For further proof that she's bound and determined to be miserable and irritated at her roommate, who, by all accounts, seems like a nice person. I'm liking you more and more, Annabella Steel Swan. Kate suggests that the reason Christian offered to show Anna around the office was because he was interested in spending more time with her. Anna mentally blows this off, thinking he just wanted to show off how powerful he is. Because Anna is clearly someone a rich, handsome guy would need to impress. I don't understand how this character can be so incredibly full of herself and yet so incredibly down on herself at the same time. That's fine. I can still make a fine article with this. Shame we don't have some original skills. Good looking son of a bitch, isn't he? I flush. <sighs> yeah. Here is another problem I have with this book. Since I'm obviously short on those things to critique. See that line of dialogue? Looks like Anna is saying it, right? Nope. Those words are coming out of Kate's mouth tagged with Anna's actions. And it happens all the time in this. It makes it difficult to read because you're always trying to figure out who said what. I had the same issue, by the way, with the time travel's wife. And I'm sure there's a special place in hell just for me for comparing that book to this one. Kate wants to talk some more about how good-looking Christian Grey is, and Anna, Anna is just interested in complaining about the trial of a thousand cuts that was having to interview someone for a college newspaper. I guess Anna is just as tired as I am of hearing about how good-looking, fascinated, commanding, arrogant, mysterious, etc. Christian is. Still, that night, Anna dreams about dark places, bleak white cold floors and gray eyes. Now is the time on Sprockets where we get to uh, 
the rest of the week wrap up in some suspiciously twilight-ish exposition. Oh, but not before Anna gets in another dig about Kate and her PJs. We learn that Anna's mom lives in Georgia. I wonder if she ever drives across the state line to chat with Bella's mom in Florida, because they're both flaky on new marriages, so they have a lot in common. Also, they're the same person. Also, just like Bella's mom, Anna's mom asks right off the bat about boys. There is an at one aspect that differs between the two of them. Bella's mom has a name. <laughs> After calling her mom, Anna calls her stepdad, Ray. She considers Ray her father, despite the fact that she only or that he only communicates in grunts, and she basically prefers him over her biological father because, quote-unquote, he's still alive. This brings us to Friday night, and Anna's friend, Jose, comes over. Jose is a completely new and original character, un completely unlike any character in Twilight. He's got dark eyes. His dad and Anna, stepdad, are BFFs, and although he really likes Anna and wishes she would date him, she's got him locked firmly in the friend zone. I challenge you, reader, to find any character in Twilight with a similarity to Jose. I mean, these allegations of plagiarism are totally preposterous. Jacob likes motorcycles. Jose likes photography. Absolutely nothing about the two of them are the same in any way. I watch Jose open the bottle of champagne. He's tall and in his jeans and t-shirt. He's all shoulders and muscles. Tan skin, dark hair, and burning dark eyes. Yes, Jose's pretty hot, but I think he's finally getting the message. We're just friends. <laughs> wow. In the interest of transparency, it's not E.L. James's fault that there aren't accent marks on Jose's name. It's mine. I'm just way too drunk to do them after all these craps and Jesus's. Anna can't date anyone because no man in the history of ever has come close to ringing that her bell that way that heroes of classic literature can. Well, you know, except Christian Grey. But she won't let herself consider such a thing. It's days later and she's still brutally mortified that she was forced at gunpoint by those commandos to ask him if he was gay. Yeah, she's dreaming of him nonstop, but only because everything about him and that entire interview debacle was so unthinkably bad. Saturday at the hardware store, Anna is doing something inventory-ish, and who walks in and creepily scares at, <laughs> stares at her until she looks up from what she's doing? Christian motherfucking Gray. Looking all casual and fine, he left the anthropopathic tie at home today. He tries to pull off that hole. I was in the area shtick. I guess when you're a millionaire, you have the luxury of driving from Seattle to Portland to go to a hardware store, but just a heads up, dude, the whole I was in the neighborhood line seems like a stretch when you drove three hours to creep on some chick who works at a hardware store. Then we are treated to what is, without a doubt, the finest metaphor ever crafted in the history of written language. His voice is warm and husky, like dark, melted caramel fudge or something. See that? Remember that mean thing I said about the Pulitzer in my intro post? I take it back. The reason this did not win a Pul Pulitzer for fiction this year is because none of the entrants lived up to that metaphor. But to give the Pulitzer the Fifty Shades would be 
to insult the mastery of its prose, that we are caught in an impossible situation. Anna does a lot of weak need heart poundy, blushy, flushy escorting of Christian around the hardware store. He's looking for some pretty specific stuff, cable ties, for example, that he selects so erotically that Anna has to look away while he does it. Masking tape, rope. They chat about her interest while the store owner calls the cops because this dude is obviously stocking her up for kidnapping. Just kidding. But to make his receipt look even more incriminating, Anna suggests he buys coveralls. In my mind, Christian Gray has gone from R-Pats to Dexter in 3.2 seconds. The dialogue between the two of them is so absurdly childish, I can't even fathom why this is considered erotic. You wouldn't want to ruin your clothing. I gesture vaguely at the direction of his jeans. I could always take them off, he smirks. Um, I feel the color rising in my cheeks again. I must be the color of the con communist manifesto. Stop talking. Stop talking now. I'll take some coveralls. Heaven forbid I should ruin my any clothing, he says dryly. Oh my God. L-O-L. Do you get it? I so get it. If he takes off his clothes, oh my God, he will be naked. Swoon, sploosh, scene. Anna asks Christian if he's willing to have some pictures taken to accompany the article Kate is writing, and he's totally down with that. He gives Anna his cell number, which is apparently a contract because when an old friend of Anna shows up and acts over familiar, he glares at them and starts acting all strange. Just these items, his tone is clipped and cool. Damn, have I offended him? Taking a deep breath, I turn and head for the till. What is his problem? I ring up the rope, coveralls, masking tape, and cable ties at the till. His problem is that the guy in the trunk of his car isn't going to stay, stay alive long enough to torture to death if you don't ring up the supplies, sweet cheeks. One of the challenges of writing erotica is injecting sensuality into mundane situation. This ramps up the tension between characters who will later do it. That's a technical term. For example, would you like a bag? I ask as I take his credit card. Please, Anastasia. His tongue caresses my name and my heart once again is frantic. Okay, that's not the best example. Finally, after the hyper-sexy murder kits shopping spree, <laughs> she admits she might be a little bit attracted to Christian. Okay, I like him. There, I've admitted it to myself. I cannot hide my feelings anymore. I've never felt like this before. I find him attractive, very attractive. But it's a lost cause, I know, and with a sigh, I, a bittersweet regret. It was just a coincidence, his, his coming here, but still I can admire him from afar, surely. No harm can come from that. And if I can find a photographer, I can do some serious admiring tomorrow. Oh, well, this looks makes women look good. Yeah, he's probably not interested to you in you. He drove three hours out of the way on a flimsy excuse of visiting the university and showed up to buy incriminating supplies at the hardware store you work at, Anna. It would be so easy to kidnap and cut up for real. Cut you up for real. I was just in the neighborhood and decided to drop by to buy zip ties, rope, and glare jealously, jealously when you talk to another man. And what do you want to bet this hapless schmuck who happens to be a photographer is going to take pictures of Dexter Arpat's great Esquire? 
it's going to be Jose. The guy she's permanently friend-zoned. Miss, only Mr. Darcy can give me a tickle in my pants. Steal? The thing, the sick thing is, I can barely wait to read more. I'm starting to understand why this became a huge hit. Sadly, I'm also starting to think that the plot of Idiocracy is a dire prophecy, and this book might be the keystone to the foundation of the human race. Next up, we have the next two chapters of Master of the Universe. Enjoy! Miss Hale? He extends a long-fingered hand to me. Once I'm stood. I'm Edward Cullen. Are you all right? Would you like to sit? He's so young and attractive. Very attractive. Tall, dressed in a fine gray suit, white shirt, and black tie with unruly bronze hair and intense, bright green eyes that regard me shrewdly. Er, actually, it takes a moment for me to find my voice, and I think my mouth is plopped open in astonishment. If this guy is over 30, then I'm a monkey's uncle. I extend my hand to him in a daze, and we shake. Our fingers touch, and I feel a strange current going through me. I withdraw my hand hastily, and I can feel myself blinking rapidly, matching my heart rate. Miss Hale is, er, indisposed, so she sent me. I hope you don't mind, Mr. Cullen. And you are? His voice is warm, possibly amused, but it's difficult to tell at his impassive expression. He looks mildly interested, but of all, polite. Isabella Swan, I'm studying English with Rose, or Rosalie, or Miss Hale at Washington State. I see, he says simply, and I think I can see a ghost of a smile on his expression. But I'm not sure. Would you like to sit? He waves me towards the white leather buttoned L-shaped couch. The room is vast with an enormous dark wood desk beside the floor to ceiling windows. Everything is white except for the wall by the door. There's a succession of small square paintings, 36 of them, arranged in a square. They are exquisite, a series of mundane forgotten objects painted in such precise detail they look like photographs. Displayed together, they are breathtaking. A local artist, Trotan, he says when he catches my gaze, they're lovely. Raising the ordinary to extraordinary, I murmur, distracted by him and by the paintings. He gazes at me intently. Yes, Miss Swan, he replies softly. Apart from the paintings, the rest of the room is pleasant enough, but it's quite cold, clean, and clinical. I wonder if it truly reflects the personality of the Greek god who sinks gracefully into one of the white leather chairs opposite me. I am disturbed where my thoughts are headed, so I busy myself with finding the questions that Rose has given me and then setting up the mini-disc recorder. I am all fingers and thumbs dropping it twice on the dark wood coffee table in front of me. Mr. Cullen says nothing, as I become increasingly embarrassed and flustered. When I finally pluck up the courage to look at him, he's watching me, one hand relaxed in his lap and the other cupping his chin and trailing his long index finger across his lips. I think he's trying to suppress a smile. Sorry, I stutter. I'm not used to this. Take all the time you need, Miss Swan, he says. Do you have your do you mind if I record your answers? 
After you've taken so much time to set up the recorder, you ask me now. I flushed. He's teasing me, I hope. I blink at him, and I think he takes pity on me because he relents. No, I don't mind. Did Rose, I mean, Ms. Hale, explain what this interview was for? Yes, your student newspaper, WSU Eyewitness, to appear in the graduation interview as I shall be conferring the degrees at this year's graduation ceremony. Oh, this is news to me, and I'm temporarily preoccupied with the thought that someone much, not much older than me, okay, maybe six years or so, and okay, he's mega successful, but still, he's going to present me with a degree? I tried to drag myself back to the task in hand. Good. Well, I have some questions, Mr. Cullen. I smooth a stray lock of hair behind my ear and pull myself up in an attempt to look taller and intimidating. I press the start button on the recorder and try for professional. I read the first of Rose's questions. You're very young to have amassed such an empire. To what do you owe your success? I glance up at him. He smiles ruefully at me, but looks vaguely disappointed. Business is about people, Miss Swan, and I'm very good at judging people. I know how they tick, what makes them flourish, what weakens them, what inspires them, and how to incentivize them. I employ many, many good people, and I reward them well. I believe that the road to success in any scheme is to make oneself master of that scheme, and I work hard, very hard to do that. I make decisions based on logics and fact, logic and facts, and I have good, solid ideas and an exceptional team that come up with good, solid ideas. Again, good people. Maybe you're just lucky. That isn't on Rose's list, but he's so arrogant. I don't subscribe to luck or chance, Miss Swan. The harder I work, the more luck I seem to have. It really is about having the right people on your team. I think it was Harvey Firestone who said, the growth and development of people is the highest calling of leadership. You sound like a control freak. The words are out of my mouth before I can stop them. Oh, I exercise control in all things, Miss Swan. He says, not a trace of humor in his smile. I look at him and he holds my gaze steadily, impassive, but my heartbeat quickens inexplicably and my face flushes again. Why does he have such an unnerving effect on me? His overwhelming good looks, maybe? The way his eyes blaze at me? He continues, Besides, immense power is acquired by assuring yourself in your secret reveries that you were born to control things. Do you feel like you have immense power, control freak? I employ over 50,000 people, Miss Swan. That gives me a certain sense of responsibility. Power, if you will. If I decide I'm no longer interested in the telecommunications business and sell up, 25,000 people would struggle to make their mortgage payments after a month or so. I think my mouth drops open. I'm staggered by his lack of humility. Don't you have a board to answer to? I asked, disgusted. I own my company, so I don't have to answer to a board. He raises an eyebrow at me. Of course I would have known this if I had done some research, but holy crow, he's so arrogant. I change tack. And do you have any interests outside of work? I have varied interests, Miss Swan. A ghost of a smile touches his lips. Very varied. And for some reason, I feel confounded and heated by his steady gaze, his eyes alight with some wicked thought. 
But if you work so hard, what do you do to chill out? Chill out? He smiles a dazzling white-toothed, crooked smile at me. I stop breathing. He really is beautiful. No one should be this good-looking. Well, to chill out, as you put it, I sail, I fly, various physical pursuits. He shifts in his chair. I'm a very wealthy man, Miss Swan, and have the expensive, I have expensive and absorbing hobbies. I glance quickly at Rose's question, wanting to get off the subject. You invest in manufacturing. Why, manufacturing? Why specifically? I ask. Why does he make me feel so uncomfortable? With straining my um, own inner commentary going right now. Anywho, back to the story. I like to build things. I like to know how things work and what makes things tick. How to construct and deconstruct. And I have a love of ships. What can I say? That sounds like your heart talking rather than logic and facts. His mouth quirks up at me and he stares at me appraisingly. Possibly, though there are people I know who would say I don't have a heart. Why would they say that? Because they know me well. His lips curl in, in a wry smile. Would your friends say that you're easy to get to know? And I regret the question as soon as I say it. It's not on Rose's list. I'm a very private person, Miss Swan, and I'll go a long way to protect my privacy. I don't give interviews, he trails off. Why did you agree to do this interview? Because I'm a benefactor of the university, and to all intents and purposes, I couldn't get Miss Hale off my back. She badgered and badgered my PR people, and I admire that kind of tenacity. I knew just how tenacious Rose could be. That's why I sat here squirming uncomfortably when I should be revising. You also invest in farming technologies. Why are you interested in this area? We can't eat money, Miss Swan, and there are too many people on this planet who don't have enough to eat. That sounds very philanthropic of you. Is there something you feel passionate about? Feeding the poor? He shrugs. It's shrewd business, he murmurs. Though I think he's being disingenuous. It doesn't make sense, feeding the world's poor. I can't see the financial benefits of this, only the virtue of the ideal. I glance at the next question, confused by his attitude. Do you have a philosophy? If so, what is it? I don't have a philosophy as such, maybe a guiding principle. Carnegie's, a man who acquires the ability to take full possession of his own mind may take possession of anything else to which he is justly entitled to. I'm very singular, driven. I like control of myself and those around me. So you want to possess things. You are a control freak. I want to deserve to possess them. But yes, bottom line, I do. You sound like the ultimate consumer. I am. He smiles. But the smile doesn't touch his eyes. Again, this is at odds with someone who wants to feed the world, so I can't help but think we are talking about something else. But I'm absolutely mystified as to what it is. I swallow hard. The temperature in the room feels like it's raising. Or maybe it's just me. I'm nearly through all the questions. Surely Rose has enough material now. I glance at the next question. You were adopted. How far do you think that's shaped the way you are? Oh, this is personal. I stare at him, hoping I haven't offended him. He frowns at me slightly. I have no way of knowing. My interest is piqued. How old were you when you were adopted? This is a matter of public record, Miss Swan. His tone is stern. I flushed. Yes, of course. 
if I'd known I was doing the interview, I would have done research. I move on. You've had to sacrifice a family life for your work. That's not a question. He's terse. Sorry, I squirm. And he's made me feel like an errant child. Have you had to sacrifice a family for uh, family life for your work? I try again. I have a family. I have a brother and sister and two loving parents. I'm not interested in extending my family beyond that. Are you gay, Mr. Cullen? I hear his sharp intake of breath and I cringe inwardly. Crap, why didn't I employ some kind of filter before I read this straight out? How could I tell him I'm just reading questions? Damn Rose and her curiosity. No, Isabella, I'm not. And he raises an eyebrow, a cool gleam in his eyes. He does not look pleased. I apologize, er, it's written here. And for the first time, he said my name and my heartbeat has accelerated and I can feel my cheeks heating up again. Nervously, I tuck my hair behind my ear. It's worked its way loose again. He cocks his head to the side. These aren't your questions? Or no. Rose, Miss Hale, she compiled the questions. Are you colleagues on the student newspaper? Oh, crap. I have nothing to do with the student newspaper. It's her extracurricular activity, not mine. I can feel my my face heating further. No, she's my roommate. He rubs his chin in quiet deliberation, his green eyes appraising me. Did you volunteer for this interview? He asked quietly. Hang on, who's supposed to be interviewing who? His eyes burn into me and I'm compelled to answer truthfully. I was drafted. She's not well. I say weakly by way of explanation. That explains a great deal, he says softly. There's a knock at the door and blonde number two enters. Mr. Cullen, forgive me for interrupting, but your next meeting is in two minutes. We're not finished here, Angela. Please cancel my meeting. Angela hesitates, staring at him. She's momentarily lost. He raises an eyebrow at her. She flushes. Very well, Mr. Cullen, she mutters, and then exits. He frowns and then turns his attention back to me. Where were we, Miss Swan? Oh, we're back to Miss Swan now. Er, please don't let me keep you from anything. I want to know about you, Miss Swan. I think it's only fair. His green eyes alight with curiosity. Oh, crap. Where is he going with this? He places his elbows on his arms of the chair and the steeples of his fingers in the front of his mouth. His mouth is very distracting. There's not much to, m- to know, I say, flushing again. What are your plans after you graduate? I shrug, flustered. Come to Seattle with Rose, find a job, find a place. I haven't really thought about anything beyond my finals. I haven't made any plans, Mr. Cullen. I just need to get through my final exams, which I should be studying for now rather than sitting in your palatial, swanky, sterile office feeling uncomfortable under your penetrating gaze. We run an excellent internship program here, he says quietly. I raise my eyebrows in surprise. Is he offering me a job? Oh, I'll bear that in mind, I murmur, completely thrown, though I'm sure I'd not fit in here. Crap, am I musing out loud again? Why do you say that? He cocks his head to one side, intrigued. A hint of his crooked smile plays on his lips. Well, it's obviously, it's obvious, isn't it? I'm uncoordinated, scruffy, and I'm not blonde. Not to me, he murmurs, and he gazes at me intently, all humor gone, and strange muscles deep inside my belly clutch suddenly. I tear my eyes away from the scrutiny and stare down at his knotted finger at my knotted fingers. What was going on? I have to go. 
now. I leaned forward to retrieve the recorder. Would you like me to show you around, he asked. I'm sure you're far too busy, Mr. Cullen, and I do have a long drive. You're driving back to Portland? He sounds surprised, anxious suddenly. He glances out the window and it's begun to rain. Well, you'd better drive carefully. His tone is stern, authoritative. Why should he care? Did you get everything you need, he adds. Yes, sir, I reply and pack the recorder into my satchel. His eyes narrow slightly, speculatively. Thank you for letting me interview Mr. Cullen. The pleasure has been all mine. As I rise, he stands and holds his hand out to me. Until we meet again, Miss Swan. And it sounds like a challenge or a threat. I shake his hand briefly, feeling that odd current between us. I conclude it must be nerves. Mr. Cullen, I nod at him. He moves gracefully to the door and opens it wide. I'm just ensuring you make it through the door, Miss Swan. Obviously, he's referring to my less than elegant entry into his office earlier. I flush. Well, that's very considerate, I snap, and he smiles. I'm glad you find me amusing, I glower inwardly. I walk into the foyer, and he allows, and he follows. Angela and Jessica both look up in surprise. Did you have a coat, he asks? Yes. Jessica leaps up and retrieves my pea coat, which Colin takes from her before she can hand it to me. He holds it up, and feeling beyond self-conscious, I put my arms into it. And he puts his hands very briefly on my shoulders and pulls it over me. I gasp at the contact. If he notices, he gives nothing away. He presses the lift door and we stand there for a beat, awkwardly on my part. Self-possessed and cool on his, the doors open and I hurry in, desperate to escape. I really need to get out of here. I turn to look at him and he's leaning against the doorway beside the lift, one hand on the wall. He really is very, very good looking. It's distracting. His burning green eyes gaze at me. Isabella, he says farewell. Edward, I reply and mercifully the doors close. Chapter 3 My heart is pounding. When the lift arrives on the first floor, I scramble to get out as soon as the doors open, stumbling once, fortunately not sprawling onto the floor. I head for the wide glass doors and then I'm bracing. I'm in the bracing, cleansing, damp air of Seattle. I raise my face to welcome the cool, refreshing rain. Closing my eyes, trying to recover what's left of my equilibrium, taking a huge, purifying breath. No man has ever affected me the way Edward Cullen has, and I don't know why. Is it his looks, his civility, wealth, power? I just don't understand my irrational reaction. I breathe an enormous sigh of relief. What in heaven's name was that all about? I lean against one of the still pillars of my building, gathering my th- of the building, gathering my thoughts, calming down. I shake my head, feeling more myself as my heart steadies to its regular rhythm, and I'm breathing normally again. I head for the car. As I leave the city limits behind, I feel foolish and embarrassed. Surely I'm overreacting is something that I'm imagining. Okay, so he's very attractive, confident, commanding, so at ease with himself. But on the flip side, he's so arrogant, and in spite of his impeccable manners, he's very autocratic and cold. While on the surface, an, an, an involuntary shiver runs down my spine. He may be arrogant, but then he's accomplished so much at such a young age, and I can't tell. 
I can tell he doesn't suffer fools gladly. Why should he? I'm irritated again that Rose didn't give me a brief biography. I think about the interview itself. I am truly perplexed as to what makes someone so driven to success. And some of his answers were so cryptic, like he has this hidden agenda. And some of Rose's questions, ugh, the adoption and asking him if he was gay. I can't believe I said that. I'm mortified anew. I know every time I think of this in the future, I will cringe with embarrassment. Damn, Rosalie, hell. Hail. I checked the speedometer. I'm trying and driving more cautiously than I would on any other occasion. And I know it's the memory of two penetrating green eyes gazing at me and his stern voice telling me to drive carefully. I shake my hand. He's more like a man double his age. Forget it, Bella. I scold myself. I decide that all in all, it's been very interesting as an experience, but I shouldn't dwell on it. Put it behind you. After all, I never have to see him again. I'm immediately cheered by that thought. So I switch on an MP3 player, sit back, turn on the indie rock music up loud, and head down the I-5, pushing down on the accelerator, knowing that I can drive as fast as I want. As I park outside our apartment, I know Rose is going to want a blow-by-blow account, and she can be tenacious. Well, at least she has the mini-disc. Hopefully I won't have to elaborate much beyond that. We live in a gated community of lovely duplex apartments. I'm lucky. Rose's parents have bought it for her, and I help with the rent. It's been my home for the last four years. Bella, you're back. Rose is sitting in our living area, surrounded by books. She's been studying for finals, but though she's still dressed in her pink flannel pajamas that are decorated with little pink rabbits. These PJs she reserves for the aftermath of breaking up with boyfriends, illnesses, and general moody depression. She bounds up and hugs me hard. I was beginning to worry. I expected you back sooner. Sorry, the interview went on longer than anticipated. I hand her the mini-disc. Bella, thanks so much for doing this. I owe you. I know. How was it? What was he like? Oh no, here we go. The Rosalie Hale Inquisition. I struggle to answer her question. I'm glad it's over and I don't have to see him again. He was rather intimidating. You know, he's very focused, intense, and young. Really young. She gazes innocently at me. Yes, Rose. Why didn't you give me a biography? He made me feel like such an idiot for not doing my basic research. I frown at her. Mostly he was courteous, formal, slightly stuffy, like he's old, before his time. He doesn't talk like a 20-something man. How old is he? He's 27. Gee, Bella, I'm sorry, I didn't think. Let me have the mini-disc and I'll get on it. You look better. Did you eat your soup? Yes, I did, and it was delicious as usual, and I'm feeling better. She smiles at me in gratitude. Anyway, I have to run. I can still make my shift at Newton's. Bella, you're exhausted. I'm fine. I'll see you later. Since I started WSU, I've worked at Newton's. It's the largest camping warehouse in the Portland area. So for over four years, I've lived here. I've come to know a bit about camping, though I've never been keen myself. I'm much more of a curl-up-with-a-book-in-a-comfy-chair-in-front-of-the-fire kind of girl. I'm glad I make my shift. It gives me something to focus on that isn't Edward Cullen. We're busy. It's the start of the summer season, and we have the first wave of tourists to attend to. Mrs. Newton is pleased to see me. Bella, I thought you weren't going to make it today. My appointment didn't take as long as predicted. I can do a couple hours. 
Well, I'm pleased to see you. It's busy. She sends me out to the stock room to start restocking the shelves, and I'm soon absorbed in the task. Rosalie is busy, busy typing on her laptop and wearing headphones when I return at 8.30. Her nose is still pink, and she has her teeth into the story, so she's off, typing furiously. I am so thoroughly drained, and I slump on the couch, thinking of the essay I have to finish and the revision I hoped to do today. You've got some good stuff here, Bella. Well done. I can't believe you didn't take him up on his offer to show you around. He obviously wanted to spend more time with you. She gives me a fleeting, quizzical look. I flush, and my heart rate inexplicably increases. That wasn't the reason, surely. He wanted to show me around so that he could show me that he was lord of all he surveyed. I realize I am biting my lip, and I hope Rose doesn't notice. She seems absorbed in her transcription. I hear what you mean about formal. Did you take any notes? Um, no, I didn't. That's fine. I can make a good article with this. Shame I don't have original photos. He's a good-looking son of a bitch, isn't he? I flush. Yeah, I suppose so. Oh, come on, Bella. Even you can't be immune to his looks. She arches a perfect eyebrow at me. I decide to distract her with flattery. Always a good ploy. You probably would have gotten a lot more out of him. I think you did pretty good, Bells. Come on, he practically offered you a job. Given that I was foisted, given that I foisted this on you at last minute, you did really well. She glances up at me speculatively, and I quickly escape from the couch into the kitchen to make myself a sandwich. So what did you really think of him? She's so inquisitive. Why can't you just let this go? He's driven, controlling, arrogant, scary, really. But charismatic? I can understand the fascination. I say truthfully, hoping it will shut her up once and for all. You? Fascinated by a man? That's a first, she snorts. I busy myself in the kitchen so she can't see my face. Why did you want to know if he's gay? And incidentally, I was mortified asking that question. Well, whenever whenever he's in the society papers, he's never got a date. Well, it was embarrassing. The whole thing was embarrassing, and I'm glad I didn't have to lay eyes on him. I don't have to lay eyes on him ever again. Oh, Bella, it can't be that bad. I think he sounds quite taken with you. Would you like a sandwich? Yes, please. We talk no more of Edward Cullen, and thank heavens that I'm able to sit at a dining table with Rose and finish my essay on tests of... You're going to have to excuse me on this. I'm just going to call it Tess because it's Thomas Hardy. Yeah. Okay. Tess of the Duvels. I'm so sorry. I've read this. I just can't pronounce it. Damn it. Damn. But that woman was in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong century. By the time I finished, it's midnight. Rose has wisely gone to bed and I make my way to my room, exhausted, but pleased I've accomplished so much for a Monday. As I curl up in my bed, I close my eyes and I'm instantly asleep. That night, I dream of green eyes, dark places, and bleak, white, cold floors. For the rest of the week, I throw myself very enthusiastically into my revision and work at the Newton's place. Rose is readying her last edition of Eyewitness before she has to relinquish it to the new editor and is also studying. By Wednesday, she's much better, so I don't have to endure the sight of her pink flannel 
too many rabbits pajamas. I call my mom in Florida to check on her, but also so that she can wish me luck for my final exams. She proceeds to tell me about her latest venture into candle making. My mother is all about new business ventures. Basically, she's bored at home and wants something to occupy her time. She has the attention span of a goldfish. It will be something new next week. She worries me. I hope she's not mortgaged the house to finance this latest scheme. I hope Phil, her relatively new young husband, is keeping an eye on her now that I'm no longer there. How are things with you, Bella? For a moment, I hesitate, and I have her full attention. I'm fine. Bella, have you met someone? Wow, how does she do that? The excitement in her voice is palpable. No, Mom, it's nothing. You'll be the first to know if I do. Bella, you really need to get out more, honey. You worry me. Mom, I'm fine. How's Phil? As ever, distraction is always the best policy. After my conversation, I called Charlie, my dad. That's a brief conversation. Well, not so much a conversation, but a series of one-sided grunts in response to my gentle coaxing. Charlie is not a talker, but he's still alive, still watching sports and still fishing. All is well with him. On Friday night, Rose and I are debating what to do with our evening. We want a night off from revision in student newspapers. The doorbell rings. Standing at our door is my good friend Jake with a bottle of champagne. Wow, Jake, great to see you. I give him a quick hug. Come in. I've known Jake for years. We grew up together, but only for two weeks at a time. Every summer since I was two years old, his dad and Charlie are the best of buddies. Charlie, dealing with the aftermath of his divorce, Jake's dad, a widower, we've made mud pies, scraped our knees, and fought evil together as kids. Jake always brought out the tomboy in me. I love him dearly, but as a friend, I am so proud of him. He is the first in his family to go to university, and he's studying engineering. He's so bright, but his real passion is photography. He has a real eye for a great picture. I have news. He grins, a big white-toothed smile at me, his dark eyes twinkling. Don't tell me you've managed not to get kicked out for another week. I tease him, and he scowls playfully at me. The Portland Gallery is going to exhibit my photos from next month. Oh, Jake, that's amazing. Congratulations. I'm so delighted for him. I hug him. Way to go, Jake. I could put this in the newspaper. Nothing like editorial change on a Friday evening, Rose grins at him. Well, let's celebrate. I want you to come to the opening. Jake looks intently at me, and I flush. Both of you, of course, he adds. We are good friends, but I know deep down inside that he'd like to be more. He's cute, hot even, my oldest friend, who knows me so well, but he's just not for me. Rosalie often teases me that I'm missing the need-a-boyfriend gene, but the truth is I haven't met anyone who, well, who I'm attracted to. In my heart, I'm hoping for trembling knees, heart-in-your-mouth, butterflies in my belly, and sleepless nights. Sometimes I wonder if there's something wrong with me. Perhaps I've spent too long in the company of my literary romantic heroes, and consequently my ideals and my expectations are far too high. But I know, in reality, nobody's ever made me feel like that, except very recently. No! An unwelcome, still small voice whispers in my subconscious. 
I banished the thought immediately. I am not going there, not after the painful interview. Yes, I have dreamt about him most nights, but that's just to process the awful interview out of my system, surely. I watch Jake as he opening the bottle of champagne. He's in jeans and a t-shirt, tall, all shoulders and muscles, bronze skin, dark hair, and burning dark eyes. Yes, Jake is pretty hot, but I think he's finally getting the message. We are just friends. It is so easy to be in his company, especially when he's happy like he is today. Saturday at the store is a nightmare. We are besieged with tourists. Mr. and Mrs. Newton, me, and two other part-timers are rushed off our feet. There's a lull at at lunchtime, and Miss Newton asks me to check on some orders whilst I'm sitting behind the counter at the till. I'm engrossed in the task, checking catalog numbers against the items we need and what's been ordered. The Newtons haven't yet caught up with technology, so they run a paper ordering system. The shop is quiet for the first time today, and I can give the task my full attention. Then, for some reason, I glance up and find myself locked into the bold green gaze of Edward Cullen, who's standing at the counter, staring at me intently. And that is the end of that. I hope you have a good rest of your week, and thanks for listening to the re-recording.